Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Young Persons Radio here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am your host, Colby Smith, as always, and my guest today is the programming assistant at Film at Lincoln Center, where she has moderated talks with filmmakers, written for Film Comment Magazine, and much more. She returns now for her third annual appearance on this program. It's Maddie Whittle. Maddie, welcome back. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad to be back. <laughs> We're glad to have you back. It's, uh, it's been, you know, under very different circumstances than the last last couple times. Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, sort of, uh, that's a great note to start on, I think, because I, I should say that usually... We're here talking about uh, we're giving an Oscar preview, you know, we're we're giving our picks, maybe, you know, talking about some of the films in in competition. But this year, not only are the Oscars not happening for months still, they're happening at the end of April. But the, it feels to me like the year in film in 2020 was like was was very non-existent. I mean, what did you see that you liked? I know you put out your list for, for Village Voice, but uh, what are the, like, the highlights from, from that that you would recommend to folks who are just like hankering to see something new? Yeah, well, it's uh, it has been a really interesting year on all sides um, as, in terms of being a film lover, being someone who works in film, who loves film, who watches film, who goes to the movies. Uh, it's been a weird year. Um, and I think, you know, the end of year lists really uh, capture that this year. Uh, this is, you know, if you're, if you're on film Twitter or Letterboxd or uh, sort of enough of a cinephile hobbyist to uh, be interested in everyone's top 10 lists, <laughs> Uh, you will notice that this year there's a lot more uh, sort of variability among the lists that critics are putting out and uh, that we're seeing. And uh, I think that is going to translate into a very unusual award season, which, uh, you know, we are just sort of entering now. Um, as you said, the Oscars are happening at the end of April and eligibility, uh, as some may not know, is still open. So normally the films that would be eligible for this year's Oscars would have to have been released the previous year. This year they were leave, they were giving us an extra two months. So films that are released in 2020 or January, February, 2021 mm -hmm. will be eligible for 2021 Oscars. So as a result, we're having a much more lively uh, release calendar in January and February this year than we normally would. Uh, because several there's several sort of award season films that uh, have been able to postpone their release. Um, so with all of those caveats, I, I do have you know my favorite films of the year, um, and uh, but in some ways it almost feels I almost wish that I could include films that I'm seeing this month and next month and you know the the since those will be part of the Oscar year you know even though they are 2021 movies but anyway all of that aside um what what would I recommend let's see let me call my list up well my number one movie of the year was Lover's Rock uh which is you know right off the bat uh even calling it a movie is somewhat open for debate uh, because this is a film directed by Steve McQueen, 
that was part of a five film anthology that he uh, directed for Amazon. Uh, a few of the installments, uh, three of the five films were featured in the New York Film Festival, which Film at Lincoln Center puts on every year, uh, and including Love Rock, out. which was uh, our opening night film. And so a lot of, yeah, yeah, this, uh, let's see, let's see. I don't, I don't actually know all five titles off the top of my head. There's Mangrove, Red, White, and Blue, and Education, Lover's Rock, and I, uh, I'm forgetting the fifth title, but uh, they're now they're all uh, on Amazon Prime. They are they're Amazon Studios releases, and uh, they just you can see them all now. And they have been conceived of as a series, so in some ways, I think Amazon is presenting them as a television program rather mm. than a film. So there's all kinds of debates over whether uh, this anthology, which is called Small Acts, constitutes five films or one big film or a series, like a television series. But I think the, the general consensus among film, film critics is that we can count each of the installments as an individual film. So that's uh, what I, how I, handled things and my number one of the year was Lover's Rock, uh, which was uh, one of the five films. <clears throat> I don't know where it goes chronologically in the order, but it is all of them, the entire series is about uh, the life of the West Indian immigrant community in uh, London in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and so it's, uh, a very, very, very vivid evocation of a time and a place. Mm -hmm. And Lover's Rock uh, is uh, covers the duration of one night uh, that is spent at a uh, house party, basically a, a, a this sort of um, celebration. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, just a really, it's an incredible film. It's you know, watching it at a time when we can't go to house parties, we can't go to, you know, crowded social spaces and rub up against each other and, you know, drink together and dance together. And uh, so seeing this really gorgeously rendered um, sort of poetic tribute to that, that activity um, was just, I don't know, it was one of the most exciting uh, new things that I saw this year and yeah. I, it made me pine for the theatrical viewing experience. Totally. Um, I, 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 I feel that I, I, I feel the same way. I just like, uh, the, the idea of like a hangout movie, just like, just like photographs of people hanging out, take on completely new meaning when you're, you know, as we are 11 or so months into not being able to see anyone in the same room. <laughs> Yeah, it's and I mean a lot of uh, a lot of the films on my list of favorites from last year uh, sort of fall into that category of mm. films that evoked something that uh, was inaccessible, uh, like a doc or well a sort of pseudo documentary uh, called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets was another favorite of mine, and that uh, takes place in a dive bar uh, and. Uh, it's just sort of a community coming together as this dive bar is preparing to close. Mm. And 
just you know I haven't been in a dive bar in almost a year now and it's really I miss it and I miss the, the kinds of people who you know you hang out with in dive bars and I miss uh just so much of being out in the world and um that was something that I really only accessed through movies and tv this year for sure yeah. Well, what have your, I wanted to ask you too, like what your, your viewing habits kind of looked like. Did you, um, did you got kind of like take the moment to like catch up on like things from past years that you maybe hadn't seen, you know, were you hitting up a lot of the virtual cinemas of the, of the New York repertory theaters? Like what, what did, what did the year kind of look like from that perspective? Yeah, well, it was definitely a year for a lot of digging into the back catalogs yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, catching up on a lot of sort of, um, big, big, big classic movies that I had somehow never seen over the years. I got to, uh, I watched, uh, let's see, I watched Apocalypse Now for the first time. Okay, yeah. Um, which was a highlight, you know, I, I watched, I did a lot of um, sort of Criterion Channel digging, uh, Criterion Channel, I'll put in a plug, one of the best streaming services out there. They have an incredible uh, rotating catalog. And uh, I watched a lot of stuff, you know, the, their, their programming is very well curated and very rich. And uh, <clears throat> so they were a great resource when I was just home. And, you know, I work as a film programmer. And so to a certain extent, I like curating, you know, my own watch lists, but it's, it's nice uh, in, in a leisure context to hand that off, <laughs> that work off to somebody else. And the folks at Criterion Channel are really great at it. So um, they had, uh, in, no, memorably in October, uh, Criterion had a sort of retrospective of great horror films from the 70s. Yeah. Uh, and it was my, my boyfriend and I watched one each night of October and it was just an incredible, it was like a, it was a 70s horror film festival basically for the entire month of October. Um, so experiences like that were, uh, you know, highlights of quarantine cinephilia. I think there were, you know, ways to really get um, systematic and sort of deliberate about home viewing that uh, I certainly enjoyed and found uh, new and exciting um, just to have this sort of this much space for it you know this much time at home this much uh sort of you know just you run out of things to do at home but you don't yeah. you can't run out of movies to watch and yeah. uh, so it was sort of a source of variety for sure um, and I, I miss I, I miss movie theaters terribly you know that's been one of the biggest losses of this period I think for me uh in 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 terms of <clears throat> losses of loss of the ability to do things you love uh for me at the very top of the list is going to movies in the movie theater because it's uh you know it really does change the way that you watch the film the way you experience the film and um and so, you know, the impossibility of doing that, at least in New York, uh, mm. and the fact that 
film festivals weren't happening in person. You know, many did happen online. Um, But yeah, there's, there's, in the absence of theatrical movie going, um, you know, the, the, the whole industry around film exhibition has had to adapt and sort right. of improvise in the last year. It's been incredibly challenging, but also in some ways very exciting to see what different organizations and institutions and uh, sort of collectives have come up with to bring cinema to people in their homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen a whole proliferation of different kinds of virtual cinemas um, and, and uh, you know, whether that in a hybrid format with drive-in theaters and virtual cinema uh, screenings, or whether that's, um, you know, in in New York, uh, we have the Spectacle Theater, which is a collective run programming outfit um, that's sort of uh, grassroots. And they've been really, really successful at having, uh, at doing virtual programming on Twitch on the geographic confines of the city um, and lots of uh, you know all kinds of sort of like films being released virtually mm. uh, that would have gotten a theatrical release but instead uh, especially <clears throat> in the case of indie distributors um, often there have been uh, efforts to build out virtual cinemas that become a collaboration between the distributor and the exhibitor. And so that gets uh, some revenue to both uh, the, the distribution end and theaters who are helping sort of build the infrastructure and um, you know reach their audiences and curate their programming. And um, so that's sort of, that's my, the world that I work in. Um, and I, uh, you know, in some ways I am curious how people who don't work in film are going to remember the experience of watching films and, and um, you know, following film releases and, and what person who doesn't, you know, spend all day thinking about it like I do. <laughs> totally. Well, I, on that note, kind of, uh, uh, I feel like I was having this conversation recently with, uh, with friends, like movie friends of mine. And it's like, there's something about, and I don't know if we're alone in this or not, but there's something about like watching a movie that like debuts on a streaming platform that it almost like doesn't feel like a real movie, you know, it's like, cause the delivery system is just so different from, you know, uh, seeing a movie in the theater, for example. But also when you watch a movie at home, it's like you have that knowledge that this was in the theater before. Like, I, I guess it's just, maybe it's a generational thing that, you know, like the, a movie coming out in the theater is like, that's the stamp. This is a real movie. <laughs> like, I don't know how to get, or I don't know how to like get out of that or if there is, you know, any hope for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, what you're describing I think in some ways, like the whole industry is grappling with like the, the, I mean, I know certainly for myself, when I think about, you know, when I was compiling my, you know, my favorite films of the year, 
as I do at the end of every year, I uh, was really struggling to sort of recall what the new movies of the year even were. And I had to sort of, uh, you know, use a, you go to a list and, and sort of go through and remind myself, okay, yes, of course, these were the good movies this year. And it just, it just, you know, I, 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 there are films that I saw this year that I, I, uh, you know, I, I mad, I can easily imagine like how sort of memorable they would have been to see in theaters. You know, I can, I have the imagined memory of seeing some of these films in theaters and it's just, I'll never get to, you know, experience them for the first time on a big screen. And that's something that like when you, when you have it, you know, as, as an option, uh, I, you take it for granted, or I did. And uh, so this year it's sort of, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's going to be interesting to see how people remember the films of this year, you know, whether the films that do end up winning the Oscars in April are, uh, you know, always seen with an asterisk of some kind because it was such a strange year. I, you know, there've been some really, really incredible movies that have come out um, in the last 12 months and uh, there, there shouldn't be any kind of asterisk, you know, in the, in the annals of history. Uh, but there, uh, there's so much to, I mean, there's so much to sort of speculate about but for so sure, no, so nobody really knows, you know, what's, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of questions about wh- how much of what's happening this year is going mm. to uh, completely change, you know, the, the shape of the industry moving right. forward. And, and uh, some, some changes some things that are happening this year will be one-offs and some will be like actual structural sort of evolutions. And um, it's just. Uh, it's hard to know which is which maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, not, it's it feels kind of like we're circling this big news that, that, uh, that Warner brothers announced right at the end of last year, which was that they are going to, this is, you know, one of the biggest movie studios in the country, obviously is going to release all their entire 2021 slate onto HBO Max, the streaming server. And I saw an interview where I think it was the head of Warner Brothers even said that he does not expect the rest of the industry to follow suit. But it almost kind of felt like like him saying, don't panic (laughs) more than any actual insight. So I don't know, like what are in your circles, I guess, like what are are people worried about this? Like, is this kind of spelling the, I I feel like in in the aftermath of that news, everyone was like, well, this is the final nail in the coffin for, movie theaters and then there was another wave that was like well if the big chains go down it won't be so bad you know that we'll still have the independent art house and repertory cinemas and all that stuff I mean sort of what what is your kind of thought process about all this yeah it's a I mean it's a great set of questions and I hesitate to speculate too brazenly totally uh, yeah because I'm uh you know but I (laughs) it has been interesting to sort of see the waves of reactions that you were describing. So, you know, we are already in a time period, you know, with the rise of streaming services and, um, you know, 
the power of Netflix and Amazon and Disney. We're already, you know, at a point where people who pay attention to the industry were anticipating that there were going to be big changes and big shifts to streaming and big, you know, and people have been, you know, hypothesizing that the theatrical exhibition industry is going to, you know, not exist anymore, but that it, it persists, it remains because people love going to the movies and, um, you know, the, the, the art house sector is in different shape than the sort of multiplex sector. But, um, but you know, when, when the theaters shut down, the industry was doing okay. And I yeah. think there's, uh, you know, you can always argue about what its future was going to look like in a world of streaming, but what we have now with the Warner Brothers uh, decision to basically put all their new films on HBO Max on the same day that those films will also uh, be released in whatever theatrical markets are open, you know, uh, because some some movie theaters still are uh, operational uh, even in the pandemic and you know, at reduced capacities. So there's, so basically that's the, that's the thing that has, it, that I think alarmed a lot of people right. was that, oh, this is going to set a precedent where, you know, now, you know, there's no going back. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. And, and um, that now, you know, Warner Brothers is going to do this indefinitely into the future and not just in 2021 not once they've you know and so that is alarming you know to think that studios might stop giving theaters that exclusive window Um, but it also I think I think people who analyze the industry uh, who I have talked to aren't terribly alarmed yet because sure. yeah. the case uh, it's pretty clear that in this case it was less about you know not having faith in theatrical releases and more about Warner or H Warner HBO wanting to sort of shore up HBO Max and, ah I uh, see the the rollout of HBO Max has been not terribly successful uh, and so I think that some people see this as Warner Brothers taking a hit, you know, giving up mm. theatrical revenue uh, in order to give HBO Max this boost. Uh, and so they, you know, I think it remains to be seen whether uh, this is just a very specific HBO Warner Brothers situation uh, that this one studio has gotten itself into. Uh, or if this is going to be some kind of precedent. Um, and I'm not enough of an expert to, to claim to know. But <laughs> I love, you know, I love reading up on it and hearing, you know, what, uh, what my peers and uh, mentors think. For sure. I, I think there is like, there is a certain amount of like, schadenfreude at the HBO Max thing in general there was like some kind of there was some kind of article and it was in one of these like like second tier 
at like business websites like like business insider or like cnbc.com or like one one of these publications that was just like what really went on behind the launch of hbo max and i was just like yes give it to me like this is what i want (laughs) yeah it's i mean it's you, you read quotes from the the people involved and it's just uh and I mean, the filmmakers and agents who made films that were that were expecting theatrical releases that now have discovered that their films are just being, you know, released immediately onto HBO right. Max. It's not, uh, you know, it, I don't think it's seen as an ideal scenario for many of the artists who, you know, originally intended their work to be seen on the big screen. You know, most mm. most filmmakers who make theatrically released films uh, really do care about their films being seen uh, in the big screen format. And so right. it's, I think that was a, a rude surprise uh, that some filmmakers experienced, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be a, the 20, you know, 2020 was a weird year and 2021 is going to be a weird year. Yeah. It's just, yeah. For sure. Well, I, it's something that it um, every it feels like every year, you know, there is some version of the going to the movies is dead or it's like almost dead or like that. That discourse kind of like regurgitates, you know, every so often. Um, and it's like, yeah, I understand like why why that happens. But there's also this kind of thing where, OK, like the two highest grossing movies of all time have like both come out in the last like couple of years so i mean i know it's not like you know there's this whole other conversation that's just like you know like big franchises like kind of kind of bottlenecking the rest of the the releases that a studio maybe would make but at the same time it's like you can't deny that people still want to go to see a movie at the theater you know yeah well and it's really it's going to be really interesting to see i mean one thing that some people have pointed out is that you know if the studios do uh, sort of abandon the theatrical model, what that would translate to isn't that movies would go away. It also doesn't translate to movie theaters going away because you know you still have art house, cinematech, repertory right. houses, and those will persist. Um, but you know, if if the studio Studios are not relying on a movie like, you know, Iron Man 3 uh, to be a tent pole that right. will bring in, you know, tons and tons and tons of ticket sales enough to fund everything the studio does, you know, the rest of the year. Uh, if they're not if they're not using that model anymore of of these blockbuster ticket sales, then you're going to see fewer movies like you know, the Avengers and the uh, sort of big budget action yeah. blockbuster category of movies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you'll start seeing a lot more smaller scale, uh, less expensive, um, probably uh, more along the lines of independent films and, mm. and uh, what you what we would now think of as independent films probably there would be more of that coming out of this now streaming focused uh, environment because those are less expensive. And so you don't need the uh, box office 
revenue. You, you can, um, the, the model is based instead on having a lot of content, you know, a lot of movies and TV shows and a lot, uh, as opposed to having a few really big ones, you know, right. I, I don't, that was a muddled, a muddled uh, yeah. description of the landscape, but. Yeah. <laughs> not at all, not at all. And I think, uh, I, you know, it, it, it kind of trickles down, you know, like it's, talking about the HBO thing. It's like, I remember there was an article a couple of years ago, like specifically about, and I don't remember the names, but uh, like a one of the CEOs of HBO left because higher ups were trying to push toward a a quantity over quality uh, uh, approach, which was the like the uh, the line at the time. I mean, this is you know this is very old news. I I admit, <laughs> um, but no, I think it's you the same conversation. Yeah, totally, totally. No, I mean, I I, I this is going to be, I think, the big sort of the big question you know in the next decade or however long you want to look is is uh sort of you know what happens to the studios will depend a lot on whether they decide to uh sort of hew to the netflix model of just having a huge 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 library of content mm -hmm. and continuing to grow it uh, or the sort of more familiar studio release model of, of how, a, how a, you know, production is financed and, and how a, a year's release slate is approached. And yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it, 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 no, one, no one really knows. But. Yeah. One, one more question uh, that's, you know, just, you know, baseless speculation on our part. Uh, do you think... <laughs> do you think we will, uh, or I guess how soon maybe do you think that, that Netflix will just be its own productions and it won't have, you know, like The Office or Friends or anything anymore? I don't think it's that far off. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think, I mean, I don't have a great sense of sort of how long it's going to take, but yeah. um, I they're certainly moving in that direction. And I think it's, I think Netflix is going to, it's like, you know, when you think of Disney plus, Disney plus is entirely Disney. Everything on it is Disney. And I think Netflix is, is maybe five years, maybe five-ish yeah. years uh, is gonna be in that, in that zone. Um, I, I just, I assume that that's, uh, how that's gonna go but yeah again totally totally <laughs> speculative yeah who knows who knows <laughs> yeah. well uh one thing that's not speculative is that we know that mank came out this year and yes it did <laughs> i would love to talk about that for a little bit because i'm reading I i'm guessing a little bit because i'm reading between the lines of some of your tweets on the subject but i'm guessing that you also didn't care for it much <laughs> i didn't not I didn't dislike it. I, I liked okay, it a okay. lot more than a lot of people did. I I um I I think it's uh it was not it was not one of my very favorite movies of the year, but it was I I I I thought pretty highly of it. Okay, but yeah, okay. We can get into it. We can yeah, get into it. I would love to. Well what what worked best for you about it and I guess what didn't work as well for you about it? I mean, I was I think I was a little bit uh, maybe a little bit prejudiced going in because I, you know, as a 
student of film, you know, as a, as a, as a former film studies major, I am, you know, already interested in the history of Hollywood and the, the, you know, history of the studio system and, and, um, you know, familiar with the story of how Citizen Kane got made and now sort of the, the, the basics of the plot that the film was, you know, uh, built around. Um, and so I just found that interesting, you know, that was immediately yeah. compelling to me. And, and, you know, I it just, whether or not I agreed with all the choices that uh, David Fincher made, I was interested to see what choices he would make and right. uh, found them, you know, to be uh, largely satisfying. Um, and I thought it was interesting to see what David Fincher, how David Fincher would go about sort of paying tribute to, or, you know, maybe not paying tribute to the films that this film was about, you know, mm -hmm. and the, the cinematography of Citizen Kane, which was sort of alluded to in the cinematography of Mank and the, um, you know, how the structure of Mank sort of responded to the structure of Citizen Kane and, and, and that screenplay. And I, uh, I just, I found it all to be sort of a really interesting conversation that I got to sit in on, you know. Um, now, as a, as a piece of entertainment or, uh, you know, a piece of narrative, I don't know if I would have been as interested if I didn't already have this interest in the subject matter, you know, in, right. uh, so that in that sense, I'm not sure how successful it is as a movie. Um, but if, if, if he wanted to reach an audience of people like me, he succeeded. Yes, yes, <laughs> totally. Yeah. I know, I know what you mean where yeah. it is just kind of like, it is so pleasant to like be in the room with those guys, you know, after, you know, reading so much about it because, it, you know, it's not like now where like every, everybody who's ever written a word who is alive is like giving a million interviews about every everything they've ever done um yeah. where it's just like this is kind, this is in a way like it's not a record of the time but it, it, it evokes a record of the time um mm -hmm. and like seeing that reproduced was like really uh like comforting i guess like as just like a movie fan um and then i just feel like there were these like cute like references that like like ah sj perlman is here and then like sj perlman would wave and it's just like like some of that stuff i felt like i could do without yeah yeah there was some there was some corniness to yeah the sort of uh the yeah it, it definitely this movie has a corny side and i don't i don't know how successful or how 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 much that worked for me but yeah. it, it's I think in some ways coming from David Fincher I I was more forgiving of the corniness than I might mm. have otherwise been just because it felt so sincere and that degree of sort of open sincerity feels rare for him uh but I don't know it's uh it's a funny movie and I'm yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's not, it's not, I, it's not as, 
popular as I might have expected it to be. You know, mm. and I, 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 I thought it was going to be more popular than it, than it is proven, but yeah, it's gotten some interesting conversations going. Definitely. I mean, I, I feel like it's, it's, I, this is, this is an imprecise term, but it's maybe the most talked about movie of, of the, <laughs> of the, of the, the yeah, season in certain circles. Yes, yes, among among film lovers, it because uh, it sort of brings together the sort of award season, you know, prognosticating and and the um, sort of film nerd, you know, film history nerds <laughs> who you know know the story and want to see the the rendition and the David Fincher lovers, you know, yeah. who are excited to see whatever he does, and uh, it's just uh, it's 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 sort of brought people together in that way and, and uh, just stirred up a lot of interesting reactions. Yeah. Um, what, what did you think of uh, Gary Oldman's performance? I thought he was great. I yeah. thought he was, uh, I thought he was very fun to watch. Um, and, uh, you know, weird, it's weird that they decided to cast and play Herman Mankiewicz's character so old uh, yeah. in real life he was he would have been in his like early 40s at the mm -hmm. time of writing Citizen Kane uh, I think it's early 40s uh, and here we are with Gary Oldman you know who's in his 50s I want to say but made to look really ragged and run down yeah um, <laughs> and it's just uh it, it was an interesting effect and I think it worked and I think he's, you know, whether or not he's, you know, a, a good impression of the real Herman Mankiewicz, I think Gary Oldman made a really interesting character out of Herman sure. Mankiewicz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I, I heard an uh, interview with David Fincher where he talked about the choice uh, to cast such an older actor as opposed like uh, in contrast to how old Mankiewicz actually was at the time to kind mm -hmm. of evoke like how much of like a lush he was and like just like the physical toll that that takes on the human body um yeah Which I, I think I think it was effective. yeah totally I think I think that if that was what he was going for he did it, it it definitely works on that level <laughs> yeah yeah because it's it's uh yeah it's like just spiritually he was an old man you know right. even and, and the movie it's almost like in some ways that gives the movie almost like a little bit of a surrealist kind of a feeling because it's like it's, it's it's this is an old man we're looking at <laughs> but he's supposed to, yeah I don't know and I think next to Amanda Seyfried too that set up a really interesting kind of tension because she's someone mm. who I think looks younger than she is and yeah. is uh you know very very beautiful and just uh you know in this was just radiant next to him you know in this sort of decrepit state yes <laughs> kind uh, of dumpy looking suits yeah, that he's got on. <laughs> yeah. yeah and uh so it was that was a, it was just fun watching them together i just i just enjoyed them you know those the scenes when they were on screen together just yeah that was one part of the kind of mank like press cycle that I like, completely agreed with and bought into, which was just like how good she is in that movie. And just like how like it's a surprising performance in a lot of ways. Totally. Totally. She's 
she's had an interesting career and this is not uh doesn't seem like an intuitive role for her but it mm. once you see her in it it's like, oh, of course of course oh totally she, she was made to play this role <laughs> The um, voice she does in it is like, yeah. it sounds right. It's like very charming. I don't know. Yeah. I'm into it. <laughs> and she's great at the sort of um, that, that, that 40s Hollywood starlet affect, you know, like yes. the way she looks at the camera and the way she kind of carries herself. She's just got it down. Their, their first scene together where she's like tied up on the stake and he's kind of like talking to her from down below and she like invites him up to, I guess, to talk to her uh, on the set, I think was maybe my favorite scene in the movie where it's just yeah. like it's just it's very simple but it's like played very very sweetly by the two of them and you kind of like I feel like I believe it in th those like quieter moments like that maybe yes. a little more than like the the like the sweeping like walk through the the San Simeon grounds maybe totally totally yeah. I think the 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 more intimate moments of the film are the more successful ones probably yeah uh, yeah but... <laughs> But anyway, so that's Mank. <laughs> yeah, that's Mank. That's one that would have. That's one that would have been good to see on the big screen. I know uh, some people did. I, I I know of people who left the city to go to go see uh, it on the big I see. screen uh, in New Jersey and other you know places where it was playing. But um, but it, I saw it on on the TV and it it was uh, very pretty to look at. Yeah, yeah. I wonder Even too if. Small. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, even even small, it was pretty delicate. Yes, yes. Um, I wonder too. You were talking about how it it wasn't quite as popular as you thought. I wonder if that kind of has to do with the delivery system. You know, like maybe if there was a more of a theatrical release in a normal year, it would have made more of a splash. It's hard to say. Yeah, it is, and it's it's totally possible, and I can totally see that being the case. You know, and if it had gotten, you know, any kind of play at festivals. Um, it might have, you know, made a different kind of impact. Um, but of course, Netflix made the decision that they were not going to show their films at yeah. festivals uh, or release or premiere their films at festivals anyway. Right. Uh, during the during the pandemic. Right. Um, yeah, it's too bad. Well, I mean, I hope that I would love to see it on the big screen at some point, uh, but it, we won't know what what a theatrical release would have meant for that movie yeah yeah well I, as we get into kind of the last like 10 or so minutes of the show here i have a couple of like off-topic questions but first i wanted to see if you have any closing thoughts about the 2020 year in review or a 2021 looking to the future ah yeah let's see um well i think we've got a really exciting year of releases coming up i think uh you know a lot of big uh sort of festival circuit films that probably mm. would have played at Cannes and at toronto and at new york film festival this past year uh ended up holding their releases until 2021 so i think 2021 uh you know assuming those films do get released during this year you know and hopefully uh theaters will reopen and festivals will resume and um, these movies will get an audience. And so I think, I do think uh, we, we should hold out hope because there's just going to be a sort of a big influx of, of great movies in the multiplayer or in the theaters when we, when we have access to the theaters again. Um, and um, yeah, I just, I just, I want to, I want to thank the movies for getting me through quarantine. 
Yes. Uh, I echo that. Keeping me connected to the outside world. Yeah, I, I am right there with you. The, the Criterion Collection especially, I feel like is very like brutally brilliant in the way they are just like, hey, this stuff is leaving really soon. And I'm mm-hmm. just like, okay, my night is clear. Yep. <laughs> like, I'm yep. watching this as soon as I can. The 31st is tomorrow. <laughs> like, it, really, it focuses you. It really focuses your it attention. Absolutely does. In fact, the other day I was like, I was like looking at my list or whatever, and I was like, oh my god, I didn't watch House of Games, and I like frantically like <laughs> checked, and it's still on there for now, thank God. But but the clock is ticking. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes it makes the end of the month really stressful, but uh, yeah, but it's a good resource. It's good to know. Just create your your priorities. Totally. Um, okay, so last couple things here as we as we round uh, uh, round the finish line. Um, did you happen to read uh, this interesting article in the New Yorker magazine in which the film critic Richard Brody said that The Godfather Three was the best one? I did not <laughs> read that. I uh, I would like to read it. I saw it when it was going around, but I yeah. have not. Uh, had a chance to see this new Godfather Part Three. I want to save it for when I watch the the new cut. I, yeah, I uh, can't remember what it's called. Yeah, uh, it has some crazy title now. And yeah, it's coming out soon. I don't even know when it's available or how. Yeah, I think maybe it may have been. Um, I don't want to misspeak, but it may have been in virtual cinemas or at some kind of virtual festival. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm sure it will be becoming, you know, more easily accessible. Yeah, I think one of the one of the interesting things about the piece, and this is not, you know, this is not spoiling anything. Don't worry. Is that he basically he he does a section in the middle where he tracks the changes, like what scenes are interesting gone and what is what has been replaced, and it really doesn't sound like it adds up to a whole lot. And <laughs> I guess I'm just curious. I'm, I mean, I, I have a suspicion that the things that are wrong with The Godfather 3 are not fixed by a handful of things here and there. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, yeah, that's, just, that's the thing is that I, I've actually, I, I'll, I'll, full disclosure, I have not seen Godfather Part 3 all the way through. I've seen about half of it. I think uh, lots of people would say you're not missing anything. Yeah, well, that's what I've always been told. And so... <laughs> Uh, you know, based on what I know of that film, uh, it does seem like the issues are larger than what could be, re- you know, adjusted with a recut. Right. Um, but uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I've just been watching it wrong. Maybe I need to. Maybe I need to give Richard Brody's uh, approach a try. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, if his goal was to get us all to watch the movie again with fresh eyes, he has succeeded. It's like, it's like at the top of my list right now. But I, I do think that like, one thing that I've been thinking about recently with the Godfather film specifically is that they they kind of occupy this very unique um, place in in film history where they are, you know, regarded by many as high art masterpieces and yet they are such just boy movies you know what i mean oh yeah like every every college every boy's college dorm has a million godfather posters probably just like fluttering in the wind at the end of the school year yes exactly 
it's uh yeah no it's totally true there aren't very many films that have the same uh sort of degree of intellectual adulation and yeah. uh fandom yeah and i i feel like really the only other movie that gets to that place even even in a close way is pulp fiction uh yeah and it feels like that even though is like is like reputation is going down as we feel increasingly complicated about tarantino yeah i mean that movie's legacy i feel like we're still it's still being played out i think i mean i guess the godfathers is too but i feel like that's sort of more settled in sort of what we all think of the godfather yeah Um, yeah whereas pulp fiction's still a little more sort of in motion but i uh but that's totally true that's totally like in terms of like when I'm thinking of posters in college dorm rooms, uh, those are the, those are the ones. Yeah, I was gonna say Goodfellas, but I feel like that's more like a New York Pizza Place movie poster than, than college dorm. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Although I don't know, maybe uh, it might good. It might be getting there. It might be on its way. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> to that to that that league. Um, uh, changing changing course a little bit. Um. I, I wanted to talk to you about this, especially because I know you did your, at least I believe you did your, your undergraduate thesis on, on Terrence Malick, right? That's correct. Yes. And I will tell you that I had never seen one until three of them hit Criterion, I want to say last month or something like that. Oh my God. Uh, and I watched Days of Heaven for the first time wow. and, oh, I just loved it, Maddie. It's the best. I mean, it's, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's yeah. an incredible movie. Is that your favorite of his? Um, I, I I go back and forth, but I think, yeah, I think I would say it is. I think, yeah. Uh, it's Days of Heaven, The New World, uh, Thin Red Line, Song to Song, maybe. I don't know. It changes. <laughs> yeah. But I, I uh, yeah, Days of Heaven's amazing movie. Yeah. Well, what is it, what is it about him that, that first kind of captured your, your interest, I guess? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, I had sort of always, my dad was a big fan when I was growing up and I hadn't seen the movies, but I'd heard my dad talk about him and in sort of, you know, mythic terms as like mm-hmm. one of his favorite directors. And uh, then I went to college and I was, you know, taking film classes and I started seeing some of his movies and I just found them really interesting. And yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I love sort of, how gorgeous they are to look at. I think that immediately yeah. sucked me in as a, you know, 19 year old. And I uh, sort of went on from there. And eventually what I ended up writing about when I was doing my thesis about him was more about, it was less about the aesthetics of his movies and more about how he fits in the industry and how his movies mm. get made in the first place. And like, cause he's, he's such a singular director and the fact that he's still getting you know, the, the financial leeway to make the movies that he wants to make is uh, sort of a curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and his career is, I mean, he's thriving, you know, in the years since I wrote that thesis, he's been, he's become very prolific. Uh, and like this, this latter portion of his career, he's just, uh, you know, come out with a lot of really, you know, great movies. And um, so, I think my my thesis is already obsolete, but um, 
but yeah i just everything he puts out i'm, I'm interested to see yeah, it's so interesting looking at like the arc of his career because like, I mean, we're talking about Days of Heaven and it's like the, he makes the movie. It's like the movie is amazing, but like the entire process of making it is a disaster. I think it's fair to say we're like, you know, he's like throws out the script halfway through filming it or like maybe not even halfway through. And, uh, you know, editing takes years and then he just takes this huge break. Right. It's like 20 years. Right. Yeah, between Days of Heaven and The Thin Red Line, uh, he did not put out a film for 20 years. Uh, and he was working, he, he, he you know, had projects that he was working on during mm. that time, uh, but he didn't put out any, any films in those 20 years. And, uh, and he was sort of not a, not a recluse, but he stayed away from the spotlight. And so yeah. people didn't really know what he was up to. Uh, and it was kind of, you know, mysterious. Uh, which was the period when my dad, of course, was like watching his movies, you know, in the 90s and earlier. Right. Uh, and so that was the Terrence Malick he knew. But then I've sort of come to adulthood with a, a very different phase of Terrence Malick's career. So it's uh, been a different kind of fandom. But For sure. I mean, I'm glad you said that thing about how gorgeous they are to look at, because um, definitely, I think probably a barrier to entry for me for a long time was this this perception of him as just like a very like stoic dour serious filmmaker and then you you put on days of heaven and it's just like it's beautiful picture after another at the beginning uh and it just really it, it wasn't what i was expecting at all it like really blew me away well, there's there's lots more of that in store if you uh, if you have the rest of his filmography to discover. Uh, yes. Well, I've at least got access to two more for the next ten days or whatever for the nice. <laughs> nice. Um, Criterion Collection. Um, well, Maddie Whittle, thank you so much for joining us again here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Really appreciate it. Where can uh, where can people find you online or your 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 Twitter, your writing, all that stuff? Yeah. Well, my Twitter is at Maddie Whittle all one word um and anytime i'm if i'm writing it'll go on go up there at some point maybe i'll make a website i haven't done that yet but um yeah just find me on twitter that's where i'm most active (laughs) uh i guess i have one question for you on that note which is uh when are we going to get another episode of that film comment podcast um that is a very good question (laughs) you call up Uh, nicholas rapold you tell him i asked (laughs) well nicholas rapold actually in in the uh, absence of the Film Comment podcast, he has launched his own podcast. Oh, uh, that's a great tip. So if you miss Nick Rapold's podcasting, uh, I can't remember what the name of his podcast is, uh, but it's I think it's on his Twitter. So I'm sure if you just look up his name, you'll find it. Um, but yeah, the Nick Rapold podcasting lives on. So <laughs> uh, and as for, as for Film Comment podcast, uh, hopefully it'll be back. Uh, in in the near future but uh, no concrete developments report <laughs> all right well we'll keep our fingers crossed well thanks again for 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 talking tonight i really appreciate it and uh it's nice to see you again yeah it's great to see you thank you so much for having me uh it's always fun i was a little worried this time that i wouldn't i wouldn't uh have as much to say without the oscars uh to to inspire me but uh this was great it was great yeah. to see you great to chat yeah we got to do business talk which is always fun yeah yeah <laughs> that's right hi this is jimmy well that's the end of the music but it's not the end of the show for those of you computer literate parrot heads out there stick this cd into your computer and you can see 
an enhanced video of what we do and what we say backstage behind the scenes.